welcome to the Inner Revolution Show, where we take a journey within to uncover the inner resources deep within our soul to transform physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It is through this higher sense of knowing we are able to design and live our lives with purpose, compassion, and for the collective consciousness. Are you ready to start your own inner revolution? Come with me. Welcome to the Inner Revolution Podcast, everyone. I am your host, Dr. Renee, and welcome back for another amazing episode. As you know, the Inner Revolution is one of those interesting hybrid sort of spaces in between people, in between experiences. And as I always mention, the Inner Revolution examines the human experience through a spiritual lens. And so we have lots of different types of guests on the show each week, ranging from traditional and classical psychology all the way to quantum spirituality and everything that's in between. And our guest today is one of these beautiful individuals that sits right in the middle of science and spirituality and dabbles and taps and touches all these unknown areas that we love to talk about here in the inner revolution. And who am I talking about? I'm talking about Dr. Sarah Sarkis, and she is a psychologist, writer, and optimal performance consultant with a private practice you're going to be jealous in Honolulu, Hawaii, but I know that she is used to the snow because she's a Boston girl at heart. She has an integrated approach, big on science, and as she says, low on bullshit. We love that here in the inner revolution. She loves to empower her clients to achieve long-term change and growth through an eclectic blend of psychology, neurobiology, and functional medicine. So she's right up my alley. I love this girl. Sarah is also a performance consultant for the Flow Research Collective, which I was really excited to learn about. As you guys know, I love to accept me high. And maybe we can dabble and talk a little bit about that today. So we'll see. But let me go ahead and get Sarah here on the show. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Thanks How for having me. I'm great. I'm so glad to, for us to connect. I know. And I'm so jealous as I'm sitting in about six inches of snow and we're supposed to have frigid temperatures tomorrow. What's the weather in, in Hawaii today for you? That seems almost cruel, right? It's like <laughs> I, it's like if you have an open wound, I can also pour salt on it. <laughs> um, but, you know, in Hawaii, our fluctuations are very, very minimal. So it's always sort of Although we have had a cold snap lately, but it's, um, today it's gorgeous. It's like, you yeah. know, 75 and breezy and sunny. Oh, yes, yes. I know. We, we can dream here. We can dream. Yes. But you do remember these days, right? I You're do. You're from oh. Boston? Yes. I have not forgotten those days. Um, yeah, no. And people ask me all the time, I've been now in Hawaii for close to a decade. In April, it will be a decade. And, um people say to me all the time, do you miss the seasons? And I mean, I guess I miss like, like a long weekend of the seasons, but no, I don't <laughs> miss. I, calendar season. No, no, I have no interest in enduring 
a full season like that again. Oh. I mean, as of right now, you know, who knows? I know. But you know, it's funny because everyone here on the show knows that I am Elsa. I mean, I'm the real life Elsa. I have to tell you, I love winter. I love snow. I love everything mm. about it. Mm -hmm. but, but driving in it, not so much. So, but thank you so much for being here. I, when I first read your bio and was getting to know you, um, I really felt a kinship and I have always been dabbling between these planes of traditional psychology, having been trained in the field, yet loving science, dabbling into the unknown and the spiritual realm and the quantum realm. And it seems like you have really been kind of investigating that for yourself. So can you tell the listeners here just a little bit more about yourself and how you found yourself in this space and time of doing the work that you do? Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess my, the side of me that, and first of all, I, I feel, uh, flattered and and likewise we've had sort of exchanges in our behind the scenes right and there's been this kinship um and i would say for me um i'm sort of classically trained in the uh in a clinical psychology degree i have a psyd i got my masters at a at boston college then i went on and got my doctorate at george washington university center for professional psychology so i didn't go the i didn't want to do like research i knew i didn't want to be in academia um i knew that i th well listen i mean i knew that's air quotes <laughs> i had a strong um intuition that my strength was going to be interpersonally yeah. and that that would be expressed in in clinical work so that's sort of my academic training and and it served me really well i went to a very specific training program in washington dc and i learned all about analytic um psychology and there were just all these like it was like this perfect period of time for that program um and so it was great my the side that you may be kind of reading and hearing in some of my stuff that's more kind of spiritual or existential is how mm -hmm. I experienced it is also that I was raised um, by a mom in particular that um, was like really early in on the, like I always say her her personality was equal parts like Jackie O and Shirley MacLaine oh wow yeah and so she she was super early in the game of like like I was reading Carolyn Miss and wow. um Louise Hay yeah. and Deepak Chopra and all these people growing up just because that's sort of where my mom's jive oh, what was a lucky girl you were <laughs> yeah so I think it shaped me you know at ways yeah. that I don't have awareness of but it couldn't have not shaped me in some way right. um and I, you know later in life i she's passed away but i found all these letters that she had written to her kids while she was alive for us to find them um after she died and it's funny because one of her concerns when I, she never expressed this to me because she was very much like she wanted free-range chickens you know right. um she was the opposite of a helicopter parent but I found this one letter written right before I was leaving for my graduate program. And in it, she was sort of saying to me, like, don't get too stuffy. Don't get too academic. Like, yeah. learn it, use it, but like ultimately sort of stay wild, you know, mm -hmm. don't. And, and I thought that was a very, it was a very interesting thing to read. I read it in my late 30s. Um, so it just you know, probably speaks to these, these unconscious parts of ourself that we don't even realize they 
shape us in ways that are both subtle and profound. Yes. Oh my God. I, I love your mother already. I know. She you was so lovable. So yes. Oh, you would have loved her. Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. I love her, love her, love her. And just yes. that idea of staying wild. And yet, you know, as, as a professor, I can say that has been a struggle for me is I'm, I've been, as I got tenured and now that I'm getting older, I'm starting to be that frisky faculty member, yes. you know, who's Agreed. always challenging that status quo and, you know, dabbling Agreed. in research that, well, how are you going to prove that? I don't really care anymore. <laughs> I totally right? agree. And, and in, in, you know, some of that I think too is like developmental. Like um, I think about my 30 year old self and like, I don't know that in my thirties I necessarily had the developmental, I guess, wisdom and experience to, to do that. And I find myself right. now in my forties, like having this freedom of um, feeling like I had to play a role. I suppose it's when you feel as though you've mastered the role, mm -hmm. like for you, you know, being an academic professor, um, it's then that you can kind of like free yourself of some of it. Yeah. And, you know, there's an unlearning process exactly. because, but I do think like even like that's, I think that's what Brene Brown does just like mm -hmm. so brilliantly is like there's only one Brene Brown. And yet she's like, got feet in all different, like she's academic, she's vulnerable, she's, she talks about her faith when it's relevant, she, yeah. you know, and, and um, so, you know, I think some of it is developmental, and that's why I think midlife offers this space where you really don't care as much, and there's liberation in that. There is. I was yeah. saying in the last podcast that Middle age is a complex area because it elevates us to this place where we have to look forward and backward in equal parts now. And all of our energy isn't being exerted forward or back. And, you know, in, in the way that we looked at it when we were younger in our 20s, we we're so focused. And then when we get older, we're chronically looking back as we lose friends and we lose things and we try to remember things. But now we're at that place where it's so equal parts, which can be overwhelming and figuring out, do I have enough time? What do I have left to do? Oh my God, I, can I do that? There's so many things that are creeping up for me and so much in this unconscious becoming conscious. And mm. I was looking through your blogs and I found a piece that I thought was so interesting that I'm hoping we can chat about today, where you talked about the blind to our blindness kind of idea, um, you know, talking about this, this process of what we don't know and, you know, all these other things relating to uh, our own behavior, sabotaging ourselves, right, you know, holding ourselves back, all these kinds of things. So can you talk a little bit to our listeners today about what, is, what does that really mean, blind to our own blindness, and why is that so important for us, maybe even particular here in middle age as we're getting older? Mm, interesting. Yeah, I, this is one of my favorite topics. Mm -hmm. So, and the spin the wheel, I've come up with aces here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I referenced earlier that I was educated at this program in Washington, D.C., which I have sort of just all, it's just a love fest in my memory. Yeah. Um, and it was super valuable and it was analytic. We sort of looked at it. We we really looked at Freud and then all the derivatives of psychoanalysis. So, you know, Brenner and Winnicott and 
um, all the all the legends. And um, so, so much of it is very valuable to me, especially in the like one-on-one, -on -one, like clinical understanding of people and the complexity of the mind. But a place where when I got out of graduate school and I started to have a private practice, um, a place where it never panned out for me was what I had learned about the unconscious. I had sort of learned that the unconscious was going to be this receptacle for kind of all our darkest drives. Mm -hmm. And um, it would like essentially be a scene from Westworld, mm -hmm. right? right? And I just wasn't finding that. And, you know, I was open to the possibility that it was I wasn't creating therapeutic space for it. Um, but that didn't seem to be panning out either. Nor, typically, I was just finding that there was a ton that people weren't aware of, myself included, always in everything that I'm saying. I am literally just a slob trying to figure it out like the next person. I'm driving mm -hmm. blind too. Um, but what I found was that, yeah, there's like, there is so much of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors and experiences that lie past our emotional sight line. Yeah. And yet they operate with profound immunity on really simple things, or oh, I shouldn't say simple, it's actually incredibly complex, but um, really fundamental things yeah. like our cognition, specifically with like our decision-making, our processing speed and our memory, as well as our emotions. And also with our psychology, there's just tons of stuff that we aren't aware of, but it's not like, you know, it's not, um, it's not like a seedy underbelly of our mind. It's, it, some of it is rather mundane. So it sort of sent me over the decades kind of figuring out like, okay, so like if I think there is an unconscious, there's some part of us that's operating and we aren't aware of it. So what could that be? Um, and I stumbled upon, uh, in that curiosity, um, I stumbled upon this concept of the adaptive unconscious. Mm. And if, if listeners are interested, we can also, like, there's four or five books that I think if you're genuinely interested in this, and they range from just really readable to, like, something that basically might take you a whole year that right. you, you know tap <laughs> in and out of work <laughs> yeah exactly like Kahneman stuff which is that <laughs> quote we are blind we are blind to the obvious and we are blind to our blindness um that is a book called thinking fast and slow mm. and it's it's an astounding piece of work and but it's going to take you you know a lot unless you're like you're just one of those people. But for me, you got to, I had to sort of dip in and out, in and out of it. Um, but I found this notion of the adaptive unconscious and things started to make more sense to me. And what the adaptive unconscious is and what I wrote about in that article really kind of outlined this, um, I mean, it's pretty concrete. It's, a, it's a, an adaptive component to our brain and our mind and our processing system. It's a, it's a integrated network of neurologic um, systems that operate as an adaptive feature of mm -hmm. how we became humans and capable of the type of thinking and complex conceptualization and all the things that we've been able to do as a species. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And you know, what's really interesting is my daughter right now, fifth grade, they're working in social studies on this whole evolution of man. And they're, they're creating this timeline. I mean, this literal visual timeline with all the progressions and all these sort of evolutionary attributes and things like that. And they get to visually see that this actually took place over even just a tiny bit of time, right? Compared to how, how, how old the universe really is <laughs> compared to how long man's really been here, but all of these changes, but I love this. So this adaptive mechanism, then if we think about, you know, again, where we are today, I know a lot of the researchers and authors are really still, you know, even like Joe Dispenza and other people like that <laughs> arguing that we're still not using large portions of our brain and oh, even yes. the portions that we're using, we're not using efficiently, but, but how does this work in, how does the adaptive model adapt to us today, even though we've, we are spiritually evolving, right? We are evolving in many ways of knowing more than we've ever known. But how does this sort of look? How does this play out for us? Well, scientists now really kind of estimate that essentially 95% of you know, what you experience in your life originates from unconscious regions, mm-hmm. right? So or unconscious domains. Um, If you really, if like we pride ourselves, most of the people that I work with, uh, myself included, you, I mean, success, and I, I would urge everybody to just first right there, stop and think about what do you consider success? And I consider success to be, um, sure, it involves having your basic needs met, right? Your, and for sure your financial needs. Um, but it also involves like contentment and happiness and connectedness. Um, and the, we think that we're making really conscious and deliberate decisions. And we are at the conscious level. But when we put into perspective how little that actually is, it's it's about 5%. Then for me, well, as a clinic, well, let me say this, let me start with as a human, as a human, it, it's humbling. And I think that's a good thing to be, especially if you're like, you know, kind of like one of the lucky people. So like I've had a successful career. I'm highly educated. I was born to parents that could afford to educate me. Um, I was born in America at a time when I had opera, right? There's a number of factors Mm -hmm. where like, I just got lucky. But in all the other places, we attribute our good fortune, basically, to these deliberate decisions. And I started to think about like, wow, like, so 5% of the decisions I made, including the one to become a psychologist, who I married, the children, how I'm raising children, um, all the different aspects of my career that I only have access to 5% of it. Mm-hmm. And so all this decision-making and these, these processes are happening behind the scenes. So for me, it resulted in two things. First, I was humbled. And with that humility came a deep sense of curiosity. And I got really curious about what I don't know about myself. Yeah. And what I don't see 
operating and in influencing me. And that led to a profound um, decision, again, instructed almost entirely by what felt like intuition, but I now in adulthood see that I had the neurobiology there because of my mother's, the, the way my mother raised the, I'm one of six, raised the six of us, mm-hmm. um, which for me, I started to practice stillness. I started to create a space every day that I would be still in my own experience of myself. I don't have to be physically still, right? When I first started doing it, I was, you know, uh, we're talking now, I'm probably 27 at the time. I'm 44 now. Mm-hmm. But like, I started doing yoga. Yeah. I started to try to understand, like, my why it is that being still inside myself is so difficult. And these two things, like having that sense of all of a sudden being really clear on how little I actually know about myself and my potentials and, and how what I don't know about myself, its tentacles are everywhere. Yeah. It's in everything that I do. Because by the time I have a conscious thought, it has filtered through all these unconscious systems. Absolutely. And um, so that humility coupled with this decision to start to observe my own relationship with myself really changed me. It, It really, I mean, I have said, I've said in other places that, you know, stillness changed me in ways that movement just never did. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and yeah. I love that you say it that way because I think the listeners of the inner revolution really are an appreciation of the fact that many times going into our inner space and revolting in the way that we talk about it here on the show is not through busyness and avoidance and going on for the next greatest thing. It's about coming to a sense of stillness and calmness and inner focus in a way that is different for everyone, right? Everyone gets there however they need to get there. But I love that you're mentioning this. So listeners, as we have talked about many times on the show, many times they beat themselves up because they think there are rules to meditation. They think there are rules to calming and feeling, you know, and being centered and quiet. And we try to reiterate, there's so many different ways. But as you're talking here, there's even proof now in a way that we look at it, that this is so vital to our process of adapting and evolving and getting to these next phases in our lives. So, so I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I was so excited. No, no, no interrupting. Think, yeah. Because you're hundred percent right. Yeah. Well, um, two, I guess like the first gate to pass through is that, you know, it's that the, the, the hunger has to be for self-awareness, right? Yes. Because once we're in the game of self-awareness, like, and um, I always want to reiterate, because like I'm somebody who, like I've built a life on being ordinary. I'm like, you know, I, got, I built a whole life on just being like good enough. Like I was a good enough yeah. student. I was like, you know, <laughs> so I don't have any special powers and I certainly don't have any like concrete answers, right? I can only share my experience as a human and then my experience really being in the trenches with the human condition as a therapist, right? Mm -hmm. And what I would urge people, um, or I would suggest that people 
do is grow really curious, even about that notion, like when people say, I don't know how to meditate. And it's like, well, first of all, I didn't say meditate. I said mindfulness, but, and meditation is one form of mindfulness, <laughs> right. but like we can, we'll start there. But like even that sentiment, when you can develop the capacity as shrinks, we call it a capacity for an observing ego. Um, but there's loads of what, you know, Buddhists have their but way to say it. Everybody's got their own language for this capacity to self-reflect kind of like with really kind of minimal noise. Yeah. And I don't know how to meditate is a form of noise mm -hmm. because the space is to observe like, oh, that's really interesting. My fear about perfection or correctness mm -hmm. or, you know, des my a destination addiction, I need to be a good meditator, as though that exists, is getting in the way of just starting. So right mm -hmm. there, you have an inroad to insight because you challenge yourself to sit still long enough and the mind does what it does, which is it wanders and it starts to, you know, poke around. Mm -hmm. in, and, and when we learn, and this is way harder than it is going to sound, <laughs> but when we learn to just tolerate our own company, which it turns out that's the hardest thing to do, yes. um, we can start to observe that like, oh, that's, and then you can start to actually build insight, right? Because you get enough repetition. It's also not like you're going to observe it. And then the next time you sit down to be still with your own partnership with yourself, which mm -hmm. is the primary relationship we have, right? It's like the only one that takes us to the finish line. It's not like next time you're going to be like, oh, I'm so glad that I observed that because now it's over. Like, right. no, it's going to happen 6,000 times. times um, so yeah, I mean, I think if you want the best return on investment, you've got to, you've got to, um, create the space to deeply observe yourself. Mm -hmm. And part of observing ourselves is really beginning to get, um, truthful oh, with the that. things that get in our way. I love that. You said get curious, get truthful. And I think, you know, I was even reflecting just recently. I just had my birthday and, you know, it was- What day what? is your birthday? So January, did I. I had January 26th was my birthday. What, are okay. you a February baby? Yeah, February 6th, but oh, close. Yeah. I mean, we're Aquarius. both Aquarius. Yeah. Yay. Yep. And, you know, the, the beauty of it was I was just reflecting and pondering and I realized that the things that used to consume my mind- I was very performance oriented. I was very comparative. You know, how am I doing compared mm -hmm. to the others, right? And now I'm at this point where I'm not comparing anymore in the, the performance. It's really more about, you know, compared to other people, it's really about this inner quest now, this, this mm. inner drive of have I done enough at this age? Have, you know, how much more time do I have left to go? And okay, there are these things I still want to do I haven't done yet. And, you know, in that, you know, I realized like I can start things but I can't finish them. And I talked about this on my last podcast and I said, I just can't finish. And it was interesting because the guest said, you know, maybe you just need to look where you already are clear. And I was like, wow, that's really profound because most of my life I've spent 
focused on what I don't know. So I'm actually kind of the opposite. And yeah, and now my older age, I'm kind of flipping. I'm like trying to, you know, I'm always focused on what I don't know and how do I get to what I don't know. And now my analytical mind has pushed me away and I've embraced my heart in a way. And I'm moving into this space of wanting to just be, which is really hard, mm-hmm. right? But how, and saying that, how does intuition play into all of this? Because that's something that's really grown for me since I've had children, particularly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, intuition for me is such a, um, it's a mysterious thing, right? Mm -hmm. I say in the article, um, I say the sentence that the unconscious feels like intuition, it behaves like certainty, and Mm -hmm. it presents as conviction. And um, so, and I know I've used intuition twice today in discussion of the unconscious because, you know, I don't know. First of all, I'm not a researcher. So I, everything I have is anecdotal. Um, but I'm always, I, I was uh, born comfortable to share an opinion. So, mm-hmm. um, but I do think it plays a a critical role. I think it's probably largely governed in the unconscious. I think it's pre-conscious. And I think that our upbringing, our modeling, our neurobiology shapes all of that. Um, and, you know, it's the, the sense of intuition is it's definitely, in my opinion, rising from the places that are unconscious. Now the unconscious, because of its relationship you know, if, if we ever speak about the unconscious, we have to, we are inherently speaking also about memory and processing speed because the unconscious becomes, sure. it's part of our efficiency mechanism. Right. And so I always say to people, imagine if you had to think through every decision when you were driving, you would, none of us could do it. We would just be in data overload. And so right. much of, right, much of those things, um, really come from intuition. And I think, I don't know, this, this podcast is turning into a, uh, some sort of love letter to my mother in the great beyond. But um, I think intuition is something that's practiced. I had a really interesting experience as a, as a college kid. I, and I'm going to sort of be vague so that nobody feels like I'm, you know, outing something that was going on in their life. But I had a group of friends, I had a group of friends um, and um, I was going to go stay, I was going to drive like three hours or two hours away with one of them and then go stay with a bunch of friends. This was between my freshman and my sophomore year at Georgetown. And I was hanging out with my mom the night before and I just must have been hemming and hawing like, I don't want to go and I don't know why and I blah, 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 and I don't feel good about it. And she was sort of not paying attention. And then all of a sudden she just said to me, that's intuition. So listen to it. Like she didn't take the route of like, you'll have fun and you'll, you should go and it's your pals. And, you know, she told me to listen. Yeah. Um, So I didn't go. And sure enough, a a series of life changing events for the people that went unfolded at the very thing that I would have been at. And so I think that listening to our intuition is a practice and, I think it's the kind of practice that requires, um, it requires like 
you know, ear pressed to the door. It also, you have to work through so many layers to get through it. So shame, doubt, yeah, fear, imposter syndrome. There's so many layers that we learn to like distance ourselves from these places where we have an intuitive wisdom, but we yes. can't ever say, like, I have no idea why I felt that way. Yes. And had my mother said to me, oh, you should go. Don't be such a, you know, you're bidding the devil good morning. You know, like she mm-hmm. could have given me a different pep talk. Um, you know, who knows how in the sliding doors, but, you know, that's my experience growing up of, of somebody who modeled to me that you, you, um, you come to know what you know through sometimes mysterious avenues Mm. and that it doesn't have to be blatant to trust it. You can just decide, I'm just going to go with this. Um, and it paid off for me a number of times, a number of times in my life it's paid off. And, and like you, there were years, especially when I was building my career, you know, now we get this perch where we're sort of mid career, definitely mid career. And there's, um, a privilege that comes with that because you know, like you can do this hustle. It's like, Mm -hmm. you're going to be able to pay your bills. You're, you know, um, there's a privilege that comes with it. But when I was achieving it, um, I often felt the trade-off was that I had to sacrifice some of that. Yeah. I had to sort of, you know, betray it a little bit for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I love, I, I again, love your mother. <laughs> she She's is the, best. the earth angel now coming down totally. for us right in this moment. And the, see, this yeah. is why this conversation happened today. And I will tell you, it was really beautiful because I was thinking, we talk a lot about intuition here in the inner revolution and it is one of our guiding principles in a way. And as you said, we're always wondering where it is and where does it come from? And it's one of those aspects we know very little about, but yet a lot of us have much faith in. And I love that, that yet your mother was really guiding you in that way. The other thing, you know, and when I think of your mother now as wisdom, sounds like she had so much wisdom. And I was just teaching a lesson to my students the other day and the difference between fluid and crystallized, which I think you'd appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering the connection of crystallized intelligence to this discussion of the unconscious. Is, is there a connection? Is it something that you have come across or think about, even though we know that the unconscious has many of the fluid processes, but that, that crystallized intelligence, right? I think the part in research we've never been able to really answer is where does it really come from beside experience, right? Mm. And so is there any connection to that in this blindness and what we don't know? It's such a good question. I've never heard it asked that way. That's just Yay. a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I don't know that I'm going to move it down the down the field very much, but I certainly have a thought on it. Um, I had never really kind of thought about it in terms of like, you know, fluid versus crystallized knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll say this, like for me in my work, um, is that I think... Um, where the unconscious does, like, you know, it can be quite um, opaque. And where it does get more crystallized is that 
it's always learning. It's like, it's like the original AI, right? It's yes. like, it, it is a filtering machine. And so part of the reason that it's so effective and part of the reason that things like chronic anxiety and depression and grief make that process of intuition really m much more burdensome for people, right? Is in many ways they are distant from these knowings. Um, is because it disrupts the 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 seamlessness of how the unconscious learns. And again, it's called the adaptive unconscious for a reason. It's always adapting. So I would say that what I do see is sometimes that in sabotage, you see unconscious patterns are always unconscious. Very few sab people sabotage themselves consciously. That's really a very special sect of people. Um, and it's statistically unusual. Most of the time, it's completely unconscious. Um, and yet, a pattern is crystallized that's no longer effective. And where you really see this overlap is with trauma. Mm. You'll often see people, we all do it, um, where we have traumatic events in our life. And despite the fact, you know, a perfect example is um, in the family systems understanding of substance abuse and specifically ad like adult children of alcoholic theories, right? Mm -hmm. That you see that consciously 5%, they, you know, nobody says, um, listen, I grew up in a home where chaos reigns supreme and I'm really looking on the dating app. I'm really looking to replicate that. I want <laughs> chaos. I want uncertainty. Nobody says that. Mm -hmm. Everybody consciously says I don't want that. I had that. I don't want that. So they're, t they're giving you information about trauma that shaped them. And yet what you often find is that the 95% where these unconscious patterns have become fossilized or sort of learned in that way, yeah. um, the, they become what they end up replicating. So they do end up either marrying or creating in their own life patterns that are sabotaging in that way. And that's why so often you see with adult children of alcoholics that they've replicated despite conscious effort not to, the very dynamics that shaped their trauma. How interesting. So again, we've talked about generational wounding and patterns here on yeah. the show, but this definitely adds a layer that we haven't really, really grappled with yet. And that replication of where it comes from, the connection. Yeah, trauma is a time yeah. traveler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it really shapes us deeply and arguably where, you know, the unconscious has um, very familiar patterns that are yeah. uh, in all of us that are cognitive and emotional. And I sort of go over that in the article, so I won't bore everybody. And it has a lot of things that it does really well all the time, including protect us from trauma. But where it becomes highly unique is where our psychology overlaps, right? So like you had your own upbringing that was totally separate from mine. You had a separate birth order, separate part of the country, separate mm -hmm. culture, ethnicity. We share gender. But, you know, within that, you have your own psychology. And that's really, I think, where you see those time traveling, I call them intergenerational, I mean, people in my profession call them intergenerational patterns of attachment. And they really do play out 
over and over right. and over again. I mean, not to mention that they change us epigenetically, right? We now right. Sort of have that whole dialogue too. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking, you mentioned before that, you know, mindfulness or meditation are some ways in us to be able to become quiet or become reflective and be able to move into some of this space and, and try to bring some of the unconscious to conscious. But are there any other methods, practices, things like that that come to mind um, just to mention for our listeners that they might want well, to therapy. Out? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Therapy is always fantastic. And we are a great supporter of therapy here on our show. Yeah, totally. Sure. So like, you know, therapy, um, but really any form of like metabolizing your own unique traumas. And I sort of follow that Gabor Mate Mm -hmm. theory of trauma, that trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. Um, So anything that's going to metabolize that. And I'm a firm believer that really growth occurs, like there's many portals in, like for some people it's death. For some people it's illness. For some people, I mean, look at the theme is this. I mean, for some reason we seem to learn pain seems to be our teacher. Very few of us initiate change when we're killing it. We just sort of like ride the dopamine and enjoy the ride, right? So for the vast majority of us, and I am more guilty of this than anybody else, um, pain has always been kind of my portal in. And then within that, staying with the part of me that is um, loosey-goosey is people can find, I mean, for some people it's painting. For some people it's art for some people, but, you know, some space where you are present in your own experience of yourself. So I don't, I don't usually have a horse in the race around what people can do. And I'll say this, that the goal is to like, what I found over time is that everybody wants something to do, right? Everybody has the instinct to be like, so tell me what I can do. And then I have this conversation, some version of this conversation every time. I'm like, okay, great. Between now and next week, I want you to go home and I want you to just like sit still in your own skin and bones for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night. And people are like, no, but I want like real homework. I'm like, (laughs) "Um, that is real homework and it's really hard. So Godspeed. Talk about old patterns, right? Got to attach back to what I'm only used to. Yeah. Most people, a lot of us end up training to our strengths. Yeah. And this is about training to our weaknesses. And for most of us, our own relationship with ourself is really the battleground. Now, our marriages, our relationship with our children, our work environment, our leadership style, it will obviously reflect that battle. But it's second. So, I would say to people, whatever, whatever you need to do to expand your emotional tolerance for discomfort, like just get comfortable being uncomfortable in the truth of what it sounds like inside your head. And if you start there, you'll be busy through 2025. And then when you exhaust that, they can call you and I back for the second task, right? Because <laughs> like the first one- going to take time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It takes serious. Well, I mean, that gets into this whole other conversation of concept of like immediate gratification versus delayed gratification. And, yes. and the undercurrent that's there is shifting somebody's motivational fuel source, their emotional motivational fuel source, extrinsic rewards, 
So destination junkies to yes. intrinsically motivated, which is process oriented. Right. And I can't and see it necessarily. I have to trust it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And shifting from that fuel source, both of them will get you played. You know, I mean, I know people who have who have ridden shame all the way to the New York Times bestselling list and who have come huge financial successes in their industry on masochistic sources of motivation. So both will take you really far. It's just a, it's really an understanding of what type of emotional fuel do you want to burn? Do you want to burn a, a cheap sort of toxic fuel because it's got consequences? Or do you want to make the effort to convert your fuel source over to something that is, first of all, it's free. Second of all, it's an unlimited resource that lives inside of you. So it's not contingent on an external validation any longer. Um, and there are no side effects. Now, I could talk to you all day, every day. <laughs> this is so much fun. And it's always, I look at the clock and go, oh my God, we've been talking now for almost 45 minutes. But it's amazing. And as we're coming to the end of the show, I always ask this end of the series question, and I'll leave room too for anything else that you know you want to make sure that our listeners really take in today is, it's called the footprint in the sand question, as I call it, because when you think about us walking along the beach, there are many times, you know, again, when we look at it, it doesn't take much effort to really make a large impression, right? It's, it's amazing how graceful and eloquent our bodies are, but yet how permanent of a mark we can make in little things that we do. And so thinking about the work that you've done and that you still are doing, and as you look back, um, on your life someday, what is it that you hope you really leave behind for younger generations and those coming up behind you? Such good, so good. Um, I I hope for two things. I hope that I hope that I leave an ode to imperfection, mm -hmm. to our ordinariness, to the things that we share in common, including all the stuff that we try to obscure from other people. Mm -hmm. And we know today that we obscure it from ourselves as well. We stay busy. We, you know, cause drama in our life. We circumvent progress. We, you know, some people will drink it away, starve it away, you know. So I hope that people get a sense that I am really, I really am in the boat with you. I am, you know, really, I have not figured it out myself. I'm just willing to talk about out loud what I think works, right? And that really, it's the process of being curious that you'll find your own version of that. So I, I hope that they hear that. And what I, what I always hope that my patients and my clients feel is that um, they, the relationship did the healing. That mm -hmm. long after any intervention, anything I educated them about, any topic we covered, but that they felt like I was completely present in their experience of their life. And that that presence drove home that it really is the relationship that does most of the work. Yes, something to be said for the attuning and the attunement aspect, right? And being yeah. one with our with our clients and those we work with, but absolutely amazing and 
how important it is to say, as you were saying, to get in the boat, just to be in the boat with them. You know, we are all in the boat and we don't have to wait until we know it all because we'll never know it all. We don't have to wait until we feel secure enough because we'll never feel secure enough. And what you have shared with us today really reiterates the importance of just get in the boat and just get in there and start paddling. And that's really what all of this is about in understanding who we are and what we aren't as well. And all that that's in between. So thank you so much for being here with us today. And can you just briefly mention to the listeners how we might be able to get in contact with you? Because we're going to have a link for your website as well as your your blog, The Padded Room, which is that's such a great name, by the way. Oh, and you. for people to be able to sign up and get in touch with you. So if you could just briefly mention some quick uh, ways, we'll go ahead and make sure we have the rest on the radio page for our listeners. Sure. And thank, and I've loved being here. So thank you so thank much. You. Um, but yeah, people can reach me in all the usual ways. I have my website, which is Dr. DR, and then my name, sarahsarkis.com. I publish like this, this uh, podcast will be published there and I publish a writing piece at least once a month. And then I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. Um, so all the usual ways that they can connect, I can be I can be located. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was great. This is so much fun. And I just think this was such an ode to your mother today. So I know. She must have been percolating somewhere (laughs) in the great beyond. She liked to be talked about. So I'm I'm her favorite child right now, for sure. Well, for your mother here and everyone here in the Inner Revolution, I am your host, Dr. Renee. And for Dr. Sarah Sarkis, we will go ahead and have all of our contact information on our page. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Inner Revolution show with Dr. Renee. And we will see See you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Inner Revolution with Dr. Renee. Tune in again next week for another fabulous episode. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Mudre, or you can check out my website at www.transcendentheart.com. Talk to you again soon.